Refugia, a podcast about renewal. Refugia are places of shelter where life endures in times of crisis. From out of these small sanctuaries, life re-emerges and the world is renewed. We're exploring what it means for people of faith to be people of Refugia. How can we create safe places of flourishing micro-countercultures where we gain strength and spiritual capacity to face the challenges ahead. I'm Deborah Reinstra, Professor of English at Calvin University, and this is Refugia. I long for more imagination. And I say that knowing that what stifles imagination is so often well-intended. So many leaders want to protect their flocks and to do what's right. But I think sometimes we undersell God's ability to hold tension and difference and even conflict better than we can. Hi everyone, in today's episode I have the privilege of talking with Jeff Chu, a journalist and seminary grad and all-around kind and beautiful soul. Jeff has so much wisdom to share about Refugia because he's needed places of shelter himself and because he's so generously created these places for others. We're going to talk about the intersection of theology and farming and about creating places of healing and fresh imagination for people who are, for whatever reason, feeling on the margins of the church. We had some technical challenges with this episode, so you'll notice that Jeff's voice is sometimes a little difficult to hear. I hope you'll stick with it, though, because this is a rich conversation, and Jeff is an important Christian voice. I always learn a lot from him, and I'm sure you will, too. As always, thanks for listening. Today I'm talking with Jeff Chu. Jeff is an author, accomplished journalist, and recent graduate of Princeton Theological Seminary. Jeff was with me today to talk about farm work, social media, the Evolving Faith Conference, and creating safe places for young people especially to reshape their faith and maybe even reshape the church. Hey Jeff, thanks for being here today. Thanks for inviting me. So you're in New Jersey, I'm in Michigan. Uh, we're just starting to see tomatoes. Have you got good tomatoes in New Jersey yet? Yeah, we are actually a few weeks ahead of where we were last year. So our cherry tomatoes are looking really good. And I just harvested the first uh, bigger orange ones. Nice. I had my first cherry tomato yesterday, so there's hope. Um, but I remember being in New Jersey and eating fantastic tomatoes. Yeah, it's it's been one of the better things in our garden uh, last year. And this year so far. So I think August will be awesome. So Jeff, we have managed to pull you into the Calvin orbit pretty often in the past, I don't know, seven or eight years. But your connection to Calvin now university uh, began, as I understand it, at a Christian school in Miami in grade school where a number of your teachers were Calvin grads. Am I remembering that right? That's right. right. It was officially a non-denominational Christian school, but um, from the number of Dutch names, you might be able to guess where people's roots were. Uh, most of the teachers were CRC, and a lot of them um, had graduated from Calvin. Uh, Mr. Molenbeek, Ms. DeYoung, Mr. Van Vorthuizen, Mr. Bausma, Mr. Zylstra. So you get the picture. 
Look at you. That's how you learned Dutch names to begin with, Yeah, that was a special elective. (laughs) And um, more recently, you've spoken on campus uh, here in our journalism classes a couple times at our Festival of Faith and Writing. You've spoken on our sexuality series. So we are pulling you in. You can see that. Being recruited. Yeah, more or less. So um, you just completed your Master's of Divinity at Princeton Seminary. And from our conversations before, it seems as if a really important part of your survival through the rigors of seminary was this place called the Farminary. So could you tell us about what the Farminary is? So the Farminary is a 21-acre farm uh, that was begun in 2015. It was started by a guy named Nate Stuckey, who was just finishing up his PhD at the time. And he had this dream as a Mennonite farm boy from Kansas uh, turned into a youth pastor. He had this dream of combining theological education with agriculture. And one day he got a call from the president of the seminary who summoned him and informed him that it turned out that part of the seminary's billion dollar endowment included a farm. And did he want to give this idea a shot? So four years later, we have a working farm with a 12-family CSA this summer. And uh, we have chickens. Yeah, we have chickens. We'll, we'll end up by the end of <laughs> August with one chicken after we do our next slaughter. But uh, it's been a wonderful place to learn and to grow. Probably the best classroom I've ever been in. Why do you think it was so important to you? Your experience there? I learned, and I think some of my classmates learned, that there are things about the traditional classroom that make it difficult for many of us to learn. Many of the professors at Princeton, wonderful as their own educations and knowledge may be, don't always build the best bridges from academia to the rest of the world. And what is beautiful about the farm and the professors who are willing to try teaching at the farm is that it forces you into a different environment. It's much more of a multi-sensory learning experience. It's rarely someone lecturing at you. And what has ended up happening is the students who get deeply involved at the farm area are very interestingly a less white, more queer, more theologically diverse less likely to become uh, parish pastors kind of student. Hmm, Fascinating. Why do you suppose that is? I think many of us don't feel entirely at home in the precincts of traditional academia. There are barriers to entry that don't exist for a lot of white students. And I'll give you one example. Uh, I learned relatively recently, just within the last few years, that there's research that shows that the traditional Chinese way of argumentation and debate and thinking, uh, the logical thought processes in Chinese culture and history are circular. But the American, the traditional American essay, the traditional American format of argumentation is linear. You have a thesis statement and then you have your proofs. And that's not how the Chinese mind and the Chinese argument works. So I've had professors tell me that I just write wrong. And I've been a journalist for almost 20 years. 
So that is one way in which the farm breaks down barriers because the way we have debates, the way we have discussions, the way we wrestle with things is different. And the assignments that professors tend to assign for those classes that meet at the farm are different. They're much more about reflection. They're much more about, honestly, substance over style. So there's even a connection, maybe metaphorically, perhaps, between the debate format, the thesis, thesis, antithesis, synthesis uh, format, maybe, and the academic classroom, as opposed to the circular pattern of ecology. So it's almost like the rhetorical system lays on top of this more circular, cyclical, ecological system in more natural ways. It's interesting because often in the context of faith and, and, and churches, we talk in linear fashion, at least in the American church, right? The advance yeah. of God's kingdom is a linear picture. It's moving in a particular direction. We talk about progress. We talk about spiritual growth, which can often be charted on a line between immaturity yeah. and maturity. But what you realize very quickly at the farm with the seasons and the cycles, what God has written in the creation is not linear at all. It's yeah. very much about the cycle of life, death, and new life. It's very much about dying and then coming to life again. Uh, so there's a theological connection uh, between death and resurrection as the central Christian pattern. Um, and what happens on a farm? It was so striking to me when we first arrived at the farm, my first year of seminary, and one of the first places Nate Stuckey took us was the compost pile. And I had very little experience with any kind of agriculture or uh, composting. And he gave us shovels and he gave us rakes and he gave us whatever implements uh, I still don't know the names of. And he said, <laughs> I want you to dig and find signs of life and death and resurrection. And at first, it was a super hot early September day. And it was humid like it tends to be in New Jersey at that time of year. At first, yeah. I was just disgusted <laughs> because you're standing in the midst of coffee grounds and rotting vegetables and all these signs of death. How could there be life there? And then you dig a little bit deeper in the pile and you start to see the worms and there were spiders and different creatures. And then you dig a little deeper to the stuff that has already broken down and you realize that compost, the process of composting is producing soil, which is so necessary for new life. So there you have the signs of life, death and resurrection. And I love the connection between the word humility and the word humus. Humility, being grounded in who we are versus who God is, right? Yeah. So I wonder if the farminary nicely fits the definition of refugia that we've been working on here. Refugia as micro countercultures where we gain strength and spiritual capacity to face the challenges ahead. Could we think of the farminary as a refugium? I suppose it. I suppose we could. I think the thing that grieves me about that definition is that more of the world should be refugia, right? Yeah. It shouldn't need to be counterculture. Right. 
it should be more of what is the norm, not a place you go and gain strength so that you can deal with the norm. Right. Yeah. So the the pre-definition or the, the precondition of the need for refugia is crisis. Refugia exist only because there's some kind of crisis. So I will get back to that in just a minute, but I, I wonder if Another definition of the of refugia is that these are places from which life re-emerges. They don't remain little isolated pockets. Their life-giving effects spread. So I'm wondering if you think that's possible with a farminary. Can what you learned at the farminary scale up? Can the farminary become a model that maybe other churches could do, other places of higher education could do? They already are. But um, is it possible to let this spread somehow? I think one lesson is that we have to be very conscious of context. So it's not like any institution should just take a few acres of land and start a farmery. I think something like that should be organic to the institution. It should be respectful of the land on which it sits. And yeah. it should take that history and context into account as you're developing it. For instance, uh, it's been a process over the last few years of, of doing that at the farminary. So we now recognize that this is this uh, was Lenape land. And so this yeah. season, we planted in our garden an heirloom variety of blue corn. It's blue-purple corn that the Lenape, when they were pushed out of New York, what is now New York and New Jersey, ended up taking with them west to most Lenape are now in Ontario, Ohio, and Oklahoma, but they've mm -hmm. managed to hang on to the seed. So we planted some of that as a way of acknowledging the specificity of this place and this land. Yeah. So I would never want someone just to say, oh, Princeton did a farminary, we should do one too. Mm. Likewise, we did a CSA because that was what this community needed. Uh, it's a relatively affordable CSA, and it, it's mostly for uh, student families and faculty and staff families. Your community yeah. might not need a CSA. That might not be the teaching tool that sowing and harvesting that our students are doing. That might not be the right teaching tool for a church or uh, another uh, seminary. Yeah. So I want, I, I think Refugia ought to be mindful of the prevailing culture and the specific specificity of the culture, right? Because you're not a yeah. proper sanctuary if you're not attentive to uh, what you're countering. Yeah, there's nothing franchisable <laughs> about refugia. They they also, by definition, have to be that which can survive in that place. And I so think the we, one uh, element that might be scalable is the attentiveness. Uh, the awareness of what it's like to grow things, the painstaking work that it, it takes to cultivate something, and likewise, the attention that it takes to grow something in yourself, as well as those elements in both cases that are beyond your control. Yeah. I think that knowledge is scalable. So you learn to be attentive to baby goats and to chickens. Um to soil? What other things did you learn to be especially attentive to? 
I think I became more attentive to how noisy the natural world is. Uh, we talk about silence sometimes as if that's the natural state of things. But actually, when we're talking about silence, I think so often it just means that human beings have managed to shut up for a few <laughs> And our machines. It is so loud at the farm. What do you hear? Tell us what the sounds are. So there is the burble of this stream that goes from an unidentified source. We think somewhere uh, there's a spring maybe a mile away, which feeds into our pond. And the water never stops moving, never stops brushing against the little plants that grow up on the side. Uh, Lately, there are frogs. Earlier in the year, there were spring peepers. I didn't know what peepers were. I didn't know they were frogs. And I said to Nate, who runs the farm, wow, the crickets are so loud. And he said, they're not crickets, they're frogs. And (laughs) so sometimes I can be attentive to the sound without knowing where the sound comes from. In the fall, there's often the sound of uh, the leaves tumbling over each other in the breeze. There is often the sound of branches clapping together, especially high up where the wind is stronger. We have robins, we have killdeer, we have Canada geese that often pass through the pond, and mallards and widgeon, and an occasional hawk or an osprey. Right now, our chickens which are mostly roosters, are learning that they have the power to crow in the morning. Oh, dear. So that is an interesting form of non-silence. <laughs> but the, the farm is a loud place. Yeah. Uh, oh, we have mm-hmm. three beehives. And the bees mm-hmm. are always buzzing. Yeah. Thank you for painting that that beautiful sound portrait. Let's shift to a different kind of refugium that you're involved in, the Evolving Faith Conference, which I've been thinking of as a pop-up refugium. So tell us about that, how that conference came about. So this conference was started in 2018 by the authors Sarah Bessie and Rachel Held Evans. And the goal was to create a space in which people are who were seeking solace in some kind of spiritual wilderness, people who came out of the Christian tradition, mostly evangelical, I would say, Mm -hmm. uh, who did not want to walk away from their faith, but had felt either pushed out by the established church or by their congregations or denominations, uh, were a little bit at a loss as to how to continue. Yeah people who were marginalized from what they saw as mainstream evangelical Christianity, uh, people who wanted to hang on to their love for the Bible, but could not understand how scripture was being manipulated to exclude and to hurt so many people. So Rachel and Sarah started this conference uh, that met at Montreat last October and will meet in Denver October 4th and 5th this fall, and gathered musicians and visual artists and writers and uh, seminary professors and Bible scholars and activists, and we worked through different themes. So it was evolving faith and the Bible and theology, evolving faith and 
your understanding of racial justice, evolving faith, and your understanding of sexuality. I think what Rachel and Sarah did not expect was the depth of the need and the hurt that was out there. There was so much hunger, and yet there was so much hope, because without hope, 1,500 people would not have spent their time and energy and money to show up at Montreat in North Carolina, which is not super convenient or super cheap to get to. Mm -hmm. They wanted to hear a a new way of reading scripture or a different way of reading scripture. They wanted to be uh, moved in some way. And then I came on on as a co-host and co-curator in February. Yeah. So I guess this raises that preconditioned question about the crisis, um, broadly speaking. So what has happened in the church, which should be, as you said before, a place of life-giving refuge, but it seems to have become for so many people a place that people need refuge from? What has happened? Well, I think you could ask a hundred different Christians what's happened and get a hundred different answers. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You could throw in a few ex-Christians too, and they'll give you their version of the story. Mm-hmm. I think part of it is a difficulty with definition of terms. So you say life-giving, and what seems life-giving to some people is feeling a member of a club that other people don't belong to. Yeah. What's life-giving for other people is an acceptance of diversity and even a celebration of diversity. What's life-giving to still others feels more like a cultural society of sorts that blurs the lines between religion and ethnicity. So I've ended up in a denomination that has strong Dutch roots, and sometimes you walk into an RCA congregation and it feels like a Dutch community gathering. Yeah. And that's life-giving for some people, but also soul-sapping for others. Yeah. So I think we have to go back to the scriptures and the gospels especially and ask the question there, what is life-giving in God's design? What is life-giving according to Jesus? What is, the, what is truly life-giving as opposed to what we might think is life-giving? And I have my biases, right? But I of would course. say... We are not good readers in 2019 America. Yeah. Our reading comprehension is poor. Our efforts to see what's behind the text are even poorer. And we're suffering because of it. And we're hurting people because we're such poor readers. Yeah. I know that you're very, very intentional about creating the conditions at the Evolving Faith Conference. And you might even say these are, you're you're thinking very carefully about how to create a refugium. So what are the conditions that you're hoping to create there? We want people to be challenged and inspired. That's why we have this weird mix of artists and Bible scholars. We want people not to be bored. That's why we keep talks to 20 minutes. We want people to leave with some sense of hope, especially in feeling not so alone. And Mm. that's why we emphasize the importance of gathering together. We are fully cognizant of the fact that not everybody can travel. And that's why last year, and we hope 
this year, um, live stream is an option. But we do think that that act of gathering together in the flesh is not replaceable. Yeah. Uh, we hope that people will break bread together. We hope that people will find one another in those in-between moments and help each other, which is as much a part of the experience as any talk that you may hear from the main stage. Uh, this year, we are going to incorporate uh, art for people who feel like they process better that way. So there will be a, t a table towards the front and a couple tables towards the back where people can draw or paint or sketch or color their way through these talks so that they can be doing something with their hands. Uh, that is another recognition that our faith is multidimensional. Yeah, and cool. That's another way where we can honor the fact that not everybody learns the same way. Not everybody receives information the same way. And that for some of us, we might need means to process visually. So you create this beautiful moment, this pop-up refugium, where people are able to feel um, that life-giving, those life-giving qualities, and to be together and to know they're not alone. How are you thinking about continuing that, letting that refugium grow and spread? Are, are there ways that you do that? Do you create community through social media? How do you make it continue? We have intentionally created Facebook groups. Uh, there's a group for last year's conference, and there's another one for this year's. And those are closed to people who have not attended the conference just because we want to create uh, some boundaries where people can at least have some common ground in terms of what they've experienced together. And we have community rules uh, which are not meant to be punitive in any way, but more to protect and guide people towards what we see as a more hopeful way of interaction. Uh, yeah. I, I hate the term safe space. I don't actually think it's theologically defensible. So I would never say that the conference or the online forums are safe spaces because and what I mean by that, I don't mean that they will not be safe from uh, psychological harm. Like I, I always think we have to be looking out for each other and, and helping guard uh, one another from psychological or physical or uh, emotional or spiritual abuse. But when I say that I don't think that a safe space is theologically defensible, I mean that the gospel constantly calls us to be uncomfortable and to interrogate our presuppositions and our preconceptions. So, so even with this uh, concept of the refugia, I don't think the refugia is a safe, that they are safe spaces. Refugia can't be safe spaces if they're genuinely helping us build strength and spiritual capacity. They're, yeah, they're only temporarily protected and not from everything. They Sometimes can't they be protected speak, yeah. from everything. Mm -hmm. And we can't be protected from everything, and we yeah. shouldn't be protected from everything. We shouldn't be protected from our own bad habits or our own life-sapping tendencies or our own self-sabotaging ways or our own sin, right, to use a word yeah. that's increasingly unpopular. <laughs> there shouldn't be yeah. safe spaces in, in, in theological terms for our sin. Right. The gospel blesses and disturbs. And destroys. Yeah and disturbance and destruction to go back to those ecological metaphors are also part of life. They have to be. You yeah. don't get new life 
in the Christian story without death. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the event that you're hosting this August at the Farminary. Uh, it's another example of what we might call a pop-up refugium. So tell us what that's all about. So this event is called Cultivate. It's funded by the Lilly Endowment through the generosity of Kenda Dean, who's a professor of youth, church, and culture at Princeton Seminary. And she gave a group of students, including me, a grant to create a young adult retreat. And uh, we're defining young adult kind of generously. So we we have folks from 25 to 39. Uh, We only have 12 spots. And the idea was to create space for 12 young adults who need time and space for dreaming and reimagining, especially vocationally. So they'll come and work with us in the garden, dig with us in the compost pile, sit next to us uh, on the little stone bridge that crosses the stream, and we'll feed them, and we'll talk with them, and we'll listen to them in the hopes that spending time on this land will be in some way for them the kind of space and blessing that they need to imagine what God has for them going forward. So one of the principles that was very important to us, and I think should be very important for uh, any refugium is the concept of justice. So we priced this because we got this grant from uh, Lily and from Kenda Dean at $150, including flights for five days and four nights. Goodness. So many retreats are now functionally available only to the wealthy. Yeah. But Everybody needs Sabbath. Everybody needs rest. So what about those folks who don't have the financial resources to be able to afford even the church retreat or any kind of vacation? So for five days and four nights, we want these folks, several of whom don't have what you might call significant income. Uh, We want to create space for them to dream about what they could be doing next. Yeah, what a beautiful model that I hope other people will consider uh, imitating in some way. So in your journalistic work over the over many years and in writing your 2014 book, which was called Does Jesus Really Love Me? A Gay Christian's Pilgrimage in Search of God in America. Uh, writing that book and in your own faith history, you've seen a lot of the American church. And now these days you're entangled in the structures of a small denomination, small reform denomination. So you've probably seen both the best and the worst of institutional church life. And I just wonder, what is your wish for the church in the next 20 years? What do you long for? I long for more imagination. And I say that knowing that what stifles imagination is so often well-intended. So many leaders want to protect their flocks and to do what's right. But I think sometimes we undersell God's ability to hold tension and difference and even conflict better than we can. 
So I want the imagination in the church that allows us to make mistakes, knowing that we will fall into the arms of a God who is gracious and loves us beyond what we can imagine. Because if we don't have that imagination to create space for others, to come up with difficult but important ways of telling stories and hearing stories and receiving stories and honoring stories, I think people will continue to seek meaning and purpose in places far from the church. And that grieves me. I'm really grateful, Jeff, for the ways that you are creating spaces where that kind of renewal can happen. It's really exhausting work. It's really difficult work, but you're doing it with such integrity and such grace. And I'm really, really grateful for that. I think it helps that it's, there's precedent for it, right? Yeah. I would be stupid to think that uh, I'm doing it alone or I'm doing it for the first time, even though for me, it may be the first time. And I think about this passage uh, in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 47, that talks about this river that flows from God's sanctuary. And uh, Robert Alter's translation says that, uh, there's all these fruit-bearing trees that are on either sides uh, of this water, and their leaf shall not wither, their fruit shall not cease. They shall yield new fruit month after month, for their water comes out from the sanctuary, and their fruit shall be eating for eating, and their leaf for healing. And there's a picture of justice in that. Uh, there's a picture of the expansiveness of God's healing and who it's for. And later in that chapter, it even includes what Robert Alter translates as sojourners, uh, people who aren't Jews, people who aren't of the 12 tribes. And it just suggests to me that for thousands of years, we've struggled with creating space and imagining how wide God's blessing is. So we just have to keep trying. And that's the, the model that we need to place in our imagination and let it, let it plant and grow there. I hope so. Anything else I should be asking? Anything else you want to say? I think we're good, unless anything else pops to mind. <laughs> okay, well, last question. Sure. What are the most beautiful places of refugia for you right now? So it's interesting you say places because... <laughs> At first, my instinct is to think of like a physical location. It could right? be. It could be or not. It's been a really hard few months for me. So uh, some of your listeners may know uh, Rachel Helgelins, who co-founded the Evolving Faith Conference and has written beautiful books about faith and doubt and her own spiritual journey, uh, died uh, at the beginning of May. And she was a very close friend of mine. And she was a masterful creator of refugia for people. And someone who was so open to imagining what it would be like to participate in God's possibilities. And in, in the time since then, so much of the world has felt forbidding. Because I think we really struggle in American society to know how to grieve, especially in any kind of public ways. So I think the most beautiful places of, a, of refugia for me over the last three months have been those places in which people who love me have met me where I am and 
just let me be. So that was in a friend's living room where I was sprawled on the couch and wordlessly he reached into a chest and threw a blanket at me without me having to ask. It is in a bouquet of flowers that a couple of friends sent me knowing about this season of grief and just wanting to bring a little bit of life and beauty into it. Uh, it was in a rainstorm that we had here in Princeton last week and I dashed out onto our balcony and moved the orchid that we keep out on the balcony into the rain so that I could get some water. And I found a little bit of refugium in sitting with my husband and just listening to the thunder and looking at the lightning and hearing the rain pour down. Yeah. So it's nothing you can capture or build in a physical sense. Mm -hmm. That's been the beauty for me. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Jeff, I'm so grateful for you and for what you shared today and so grateful for your time talking to me today. Thank you. Thank you. This has been Refugia, a podcast about renewal. Find us on the web at refugiapodcast.com and leave us a comment. Send us your ideas about what Refugia means for you. You can also find me, Deborah Reenstra, on Facebook and Twitter at Deborah K. Reenstra.